Hello, hello. I am Karen Jean-François, and this is the Women in Data podcast, a podcast where every other week I interview some of the most inspiring women working in data. They discuss how data is used in various industries, share their knowledge and experience in the field, and equip you with tips to help you overcome challenges on your career and feel great. Let's get straight to it. I am joined today by Louise Menard Atem, Head of Insights at GBG. In this conversation, Louise shares her experience and learnings stepping up into this role that was outside of her comfort zone. You will first hear about fraud analytics and how it benefits businesses, as well as how Louise moved from identifying fraud after it happened to predicting unconventional behaviors and therefore preventing them. The conversation then moves towards stepping up into a leadership role, where Louise describes how she was able to leverage her network to lend her current role, as well as how she crafted every day by balancing what she wants from the role and what the company wants from her. For Louise, it is very important to be able to voice what you actually want from your career in life. She will also share what she learned from the journey. Hi, Louise. Welcome to the Women in Data podcast. Hi, Karen. It's good to see you. I can't wait to start this conversation. We are talking about some very, very interesting topics and something that I'm really curious about. First, we're talking about fraud analytics, and then we're talking about stepping up in your career and building an analytics team, which is something that I really would like to do at some point. So I'm really keen to hear about everything you have to say and and learn from your experience. But before we get into it, can I invite you to introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm Louise Maynard Atem. I currently head up the data insights team at GBG. I've been in the organization not that long, actually. I joined in March of this year, so peak lockdown times. And yeah, previous to that, I was at Experian, again, in data innovation roles doing that. And yeah, I've been working in data probably since about 2012, 2013. So getting on for a decade now. Really doesn't feel like it's been that long, but somehow it has. (laughs) Uh, we started. <laughs> we started around the same time. I think I I started 2011 oh, as an intern, but then I had my first proper job in data in 2012. So definitely around the same time. And I hear what you say about <laughs> it being a decade. When I'm like, oh, I've been working for 10 years already. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I genuinely don't know where that time has gone. Yeah. Well, especially the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> 2021 went in a flash. Yeah, so fraud analytics, you've been working in fraud for a while. Mm -hmm. And this is something I've always been curious about, but never actually properly went deep inside the fraud analytics. So my first job actually was, you could kind of say it was fraud, but without being fraud. But how did you get involved into that? It was really by total happenstance. I would love to sit here and say it was all part of my five-year, ten-year plan, but (laughs) definitely was not. So I was working at BAE Systems about five, six years ago, and I was in the cybersecurity division of the organization. 
And one of the projects I worked on was on a, a software called NetReveal, uh, which is all about insurance fraud and how you use data to investigate any transactions that are suspected of insurance fraud. So totally by chance, I thought it was a really, really interesting area. I still do, obviously, using data in that sort of way to sort of track people's behaviors. But at that time, I was looking at fraud after the fact. Then after BAE, I moved into Experian, which is obviously more financial services related. But again, looking at fraud kind of after it had been committed. So using data to try and pull together evidence to prove that something was a fraud. Now in GBD, I've kind of moved up the customer journey a little bit. And I'm actually trying to use data to predict fraud before it happens. So at the point of onboarding, trying to pull together sort of different types of data and different sorts of behavioral characteristics to identify to a customer, this transaction or this onboarding is potentially risky, whereas this one is potentially fine and you're happy to onboard the customer as normal. So instead of waiting until a fraud is actually taking place, we're now trying to use data to understand people's behaviors to see if we can predict what will lead to fraud later on, rather than fraud that has already happened. It's just a really, really interesting space. So data ultimately tells us about behavior, right? Over time, we get to understand people's behavior. So we understand what the norm is for people. So the way I use my devices, the way I log in, the way I hold my phone, all of these things will tell you over a period of time that, you know, this is just Louise going about her daily business. And the interesting thing with fraud is what we're looking for is deviations in that normal pattern of behavior. And that's where we start to think, okay, this is, not necessarily a risk, but it's suspicious because it's different from the way an average user would behave. So can we potentially add more friction into the journey, introduce further verification so that we can build our confidence in either this person being a genuine customer or being a fraudulent customer? So it's weird. I've kind of gone on that journey from looking at fraud after it's happened, starting to move into, okay, this could be risky because to Let's try and see if we can predict a bad outcome before it happens, all through the power of different types of data and different ways of combining that data, which is just, it's been a really fascinating journey to be on, to be honest. Yeah, and I feel like it definitely makes sense because, you know, to be able to predict fraud, you need to understand what fraud is really. So the fact that you looked at it before means that you already have this eye for spotting what looks Unconventional, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, suspicious. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should definitely take that conversation offline at some point because I have okay. lots of questions that I could use in my own work, to be fair, because I feel like there is this area of fraud and some companies focusing on fraud and things like that. But in any possible role in data, you're definitely going to have these unusual behaviors mm. and people acting in, in exactly. weird ways that we need to flag. Uh, and this is something I'm actually facing at the moment. But one more thing on that, you talked about onboarding customers, so making sure you're not onboarding customers who are fraudulent. I'm not fully familiar with the product you're, you're working on. So how, how does that translate? Well, why would you want to stop people before onboarding? So we focus primarily on like identity verification and, and fraud that might happen at that point. So think of opening a bank account, let's say. So you or I would open a bank account, we would do all of the, you know, checking our ID documents and then be onboarded and, you know, transact as we normally would. Now, what we want to try and stop is 
any kind of fraudulent actors being able to open bank accounts and then transact as they normally would because those transactions would be not very good. Um, <laughs> or, or in an e-commerce setting, you don't want to bring customers in and then start delivering to those customers only to suddenly not get paid or for those items that you're delivering to end up not going to where they should be going. So if we can allow as many good customers into the funnel then that decreases the likelihood of having like chargebacks and any kind of fraudulent activity for the customer, so the bank or the e-commerce retailer. Whereas if we're onboarding people that are of potential risk, that leads to losses later on down the line. So what we want to try and do is let all of the good people in at the earliest possible point, but keep all of the bad people out also at the earliest possible point. It's also finding a balance, isn't it? It is. It is. Because I mean, you know, there's one way to stop fraud entirely, and that's by not letting any transactions go through or not onboarding any customers. So obviously, that isn't really a feasible solution for any, any of our customers. So we do have to strike that balance of minimizing the friction in the journey, because, you know, we as consumers, we don't want to spend ages signing up for an account and taking a process that's going to take three, four days, our expectations have changed because of the way we interact with online services. So, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Amazon Prime user. When I can't get something delivered same day or next day, it's too long. I'm just not willing to wait anymore. And consumers aren't really willing to wait. Yeah. So we have to strike that balance of how do we ensure a smooth and friction-free and fast onboarding journey for the good customers but how do we inject in enough friction to try and deter the bad customers so it's a constant balancing act and it's not something that's static we're constantly revisiting that balance to make sure that we are maximizing the good minimizing the bad we're never going to get it absolutely perfect i don't think any organization ever will but the fact that we're bringing in different types of data layering that data to try and understand that behavior as well and as quickly as possible gives us the best, I think, fighting chance at getting as many good customers through the door. This is fascinating. And I, I could talk about it and listen to you <laughs> for the whole day. But there is something else I'm very keen to talk about. Mm. And it is building an analytics team and stepping up into that role. So I'm going to stop talking about fraud here okay. just for very selfish reasons. <laughs> So you did mention that you joined GPG in March 2021 mm -hmm. to help them build their analytics capacity. And before, they were not focused on analytics, were they? GPG has always been a data company because, you know, we've been building up a massive network of data suppliers and providing products to our customers for 30 plus years now. So they've always been a company that's very focused on data. But I suppose we haven't necessarily been able to take full advantage of that data and build insights over the top of it. Rather than, you know, taking data from over here and then servicing in a product over there, it's about the ability to combine the different sorts of data that we're bringing in and then derive insights off of the top. So data in and of itself, not that useful. But when data is combined and, you know, there's some thinking put over the top and some very smart data science put over the top, you're actually able to generate insights and insights are what businesses can take action on. So I think our focus has always been on data, but it hasn't necessarily been on insights and the analytics that supports that. So I joined to basically figure out how we do that across the business, both internally to make sure that we're operating as efficiently as possible, but also externally to make sure that our customers are getting the best possible products from GPG. So it was um, a bit of a mammoth task. I was a little bit... Uh, I was, I was a lot terrified, to be totally honest with you. It was one of those things where they said, right, we need to come up with a data strategy for this entire company. And I was like, okay, 
no problem at all. I could do this. Uh, in my head, I was definitely not having that conversation with myself. Um, <laughs> but it was, it did, it did feel like a, a very big task and it is central to the strategy of the business and to the future of the business. And they told me that. And obviously it's not pressure, I would say, but I did feel like, okay, this is a big role. And no one's ever done it before in the business. So I'm kind of building the plane after I've jumped off the cliff. So it was mixed emotions. I was very nervous about it. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, imposter syndrome kicks right in. And you're like, what am I doing? How am I writing a data strategy for a global company? What on earth is going on? So it was it was all of that. But, uh, you know, the business has been super supportive. And I'm now starting to build out a team. So I've got other people joining me on this crusade. So it's definitely getting not easier, but I suppose my confidence is growing a lot because I've had some wins in the time that I've been there. Yeah, it was quite terrifying. I had to have a bit of a conversation with myself in the mirror to be like, Louise, you can do this. They hired you for a reason. It's because you're very capable. Stop being so, stop being doubting yourself so much and just get on with it. So yeah, it's, it was a bit of a roller coaster to start with. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> It, it's such a brave act and I'm just picturing you in the morning in front mm. of your mirror being like yep. I can do that <laughs> yeah power posing and everything <laughs> <laughs> and what were your motivations to apply for that role because this is not something you you had done before and it mm. was a, a step up and a scary one yeah what, what, <laughs> what made you that, do that that was kind of a good thing like the fact that it scared me proved that I was like okay being a little bit scared is good. I know we were talking before we started recording about spiders. That kind of scary is not good. Not for me anyway. <laughs> but um, it meant that I was growing more and learning new things. The fact that I was just like, I'm not 100% confident in walking into this. We were building an entirely new team from scratch. We were building a data strategy entirely from scratch. And I've written strategies before, not for entire organizations, <laughs> granted, but I have written strategies before. But I suppose the difference with this was it's not just about writing the strategy. I spent some time in consultancy. So I spent some time, you know, creating very beautiful decks that other people would have to execute. But it was also actually executing the strategy. So it's all well and good to write it, you know, get approval from the exec and the board and all those good things. But then it's like, okay, now go away and deliver it. So <laughs> I suppose I had to ask myself a, like a couple of things. It's like, is it exciting? Number one, do you feel like you could learn new things, new areas that you haven't previously worked in and also learn from new people that you don't yet know? And it was all of those things because it was a little bit like a blank sheet of paper, which to some people is really, really scary and they don't like that. But I quite enjoy I quite enjoy uncertainty and I quite enjoy ambiguity because I think it means I can set my own direction. I'm not a very good follower, to be honest. I don't like being told what I have to do. And my parents will definitely attest to that. So I like someone to say, right, this is the end point. This is where we're going. You're here and you get to figure out how you get to there. But as long as you get to there, that's fine. So I quite enjoy that whole charting my own route to things because it means I've got full say over how we do things and how we get there and the speed at which we move. And I like the accountability of that as well. Because I think if you don't have accountability, you're not really going to deliver anything. So I quite like having that accountability. And then in the GBG role, I met a bunch of people and I was just like, could I learn a lot from these people? Do I like them? To be honest, I do. I've based a lot of my judgments on the people that I work with. And I, I don't even apologize for that anymore. I used to think, oh, you know, maybe that's a bit silly. But you spend a lot of time with these people. And if you can't grow from them, learn from them, then there's not a lot of point in you being there. 
So it was, is the role exciting? And could I see myself learning a lot from the people? The answer was a resounding yes to both of those. So despite the fact that I was terrified <laughs> of the level of responsibility, I figured it would be good for me to go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, this thing around making sure that you can get along with the people or you see yourself working with them is extremely important, especially if you are taking this step that pushes you right outside of your comfort zone, yeah. which is the way to grow. Actually, mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you have that support yeah. and that you have people you can rely on and people who can actually encourage you within the company. Otherwise, exactly. Exactly. it's just you on your journey by your own. And it's a bit too much in, in one <laughs> yeah. go isn't it <laughs> exactly and I think on just to add on that so the people that are that I now work with my boss now so very supportive and I think there's there's a slight difference between like having a mentor and there's lots of people who I could have as mentors in the business but also people who are like actually actively championing you there is a difference between those two things and when I met the people that I met in the sort of recruitment process I was just like I see mentors and I see champions here and that's why I thought it would be a good environment to join because it's all well and good for people to you know help give you mentorship and tell you how they've tackled things in life but you also need people who are going to champion you when you're not in the room and I felt like I had a good mix of those people in the organization which made it a little bit less terrifying to make the step up yeah that makes sense so you made your decision what are the steps that you followed to actually land the job I relied very heavily on network on this one so I knew friends of mine and women in my network who knew the company really well knew that they wanted to move more into the data insight space and so It was leveraging those connections to, you know, get me the introductions to the right people at the organization who were making the decisions. And that's a good and a bad thing. So it was good that I was able to leverage my network, but I appreciate that like not everybody has a network that they can leverage. So I do feel like there needs to be some maybe some greater transparency around some of these things, which is why I'm always keen to talk about it and tell people how I did it. So I was able to like leverage someone who knew the company really well, knew the decision makers and key stakeholders in the business, and they made the introduction for me. So that was how it started. Then the rest of it was just like, you know, a normal um, recruitment process, have the interviews, you know, do the competency tests, all of that. But it did start off with that introduction. And I think, would I be in the role now had I not gotten that really warm introduction from someone that I know? And the answer is possibly, possibly, because it would have gone out to, to be advertised and I would have applied like everybody else did. But That really was a, a really good helping hand into the situation because obviously the person that introduced me had credibility, which was kind of conferred onto me because she was making yeah. that introduction for me. And I just, I feel like we need to, particularly as women, need to do a lot more of that. So I'm always keen to, if I see a job that's advertised, you know, in my team or elsewhere, anywhere in, in the business, I always want to recommend people because I know it still carries a lot of weight Whether it should or not is a question for another time, but it definitely does. So I think we need to sort of get more into the habit of doing that, of seeing a role and thinking, I know someone who could go forward for that role. I'm going to put them forward. I'm going to use whatever credibility I have to try and help that person into a role. Because I think you know, lots of people are already doing that quite a bit, not naming any names or genders. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, we definitely need to be doing it more. Yeah, I totally agree, especially because, you know, you're seeing the job would have been advertised and you would have eventually seen it, but maybe, maybe not, you know, because they work in your field and you already knew people who are working there, maybe you are following the company, but 
we're mm-hmm. not like non-stop following companies and looking at what's going on. And there are so many companies out there that it's yeah. very difficult to know all the roles that are available. And in December, we released on the podcast an episode with Jennifer Agnes talking about networking and how to build a mm. strong and sustainable network. And I am with you. So for me, networking is super, super important. And mm-hmm. there are some statistics saying that most roles basically are not really advertised. So they get, mm-hmm. especially the most senior roles, exactly. they, they get filled through networking. So when people are in junior, more junior position, mm-hmm. they can rely on recruiters in on the market and all these things. But the more senior you get, the more you will have to rely on your network. So making it a habit of building that mm-hmm. strong network is very important from the start. Definitely agree with that. Is there anything that you wish you knew before you started that job? <laughs> Quite a few things, but I think they are very specific to the time that we've been living in. So it was very weird joining a company in lockdown. I'm a very extroverted person. I'm a very social person. Not that those two things are always linked. Um, but I'm, and I, you know, networking to me, well, building relationships to me, I'm not going to call it networking, is really, really important. And I really enjoy doing it. I, I get a lot of energy from being around other people. So lockdown was hard for me because, I mean, obviously I was with my husband and he's wonderful. But I wasn't really around anybody else. And I joined the business from the spare room of my flat in London, where I'd been doing my previous job just, you know, the week before. So it was really hard to translate the type of person that I am into a lockdown setting and try and build those relationships via teams rather than in person in the office by the water cooler or the coffee machine. I wish I'd probably done a bit more to understand how you network in a virtual world because mm-hmm. I found the first few months a bit difficult from a perspective of it was a challenging job <laughs> writing a strategy for a company, but also difficult in that I didn't feel like I could just have random conversations with people, which is you know how things really get done, if we're honest. It always felt like, oh, I have to set up a meeting with this person. It has to be formal. It has to have an agenda. And it didn't really need to be like that. But because I wasn't really super comfortable in the organization, I didn't know anybody and I have never met anybody and I'm sitting in my flat it felt like it was a lot harder for me to sort of get into my groove, I suppose, because we were so remote. And I spent the first three months being a bit like, oh, did I make the right choice? Am I meeting enough people? Am I talking to enough people? I like, I just need to see someone in person. So I think maybe if I put a, maybe a little bit less pressure on myself to just suddenly go into things and be like, oh yes, it's great. I, I know all these people. I'm going to build this network instantly and it's all going to be fantastic because that's how I've operated generally in jobs. I didn't really give myself any grace, I suppose, because I was in a in a virtual environment and I didn't really take into account enough what impact that has on starting a new role. Yeah. I think what's gotten better though is now that I've started to hire people and I had that experience of ugh, feeling a little bit uncomfortable in the whole virtual world. I'm really, really conscious of that. So I, I'm, and hopefully my team will attest to this, that I'm really aware that it's really hard to actually start a job in lockdown in a company where you know no one. And I was fortunate. I knew a couple of people tangentially, but I, you know, I could still reach out to them. They've joined the company. They know no one at all. So I'm really hyper aware of that experience. And I want to make sure that they don't go through the same sorts of not stress, but drama, I suppose, that I did when I first joined of feeling like I wasn't doing enough or wasn't talking to enough people or just all of the stresses that we've been through in this weird period that we've had to live in. I I hear that and I did not change jobs during the lockdown, but 
I'm an introvert and building a relationship is very important for me because not because I like to be around people and all these things because I'm an introvert. Although, <laughs> I mean, I get my energy from being in a quiet yeah. environment and in my head and all these things. But for me to be able to perform at work, I need these strong relationships with people and we've had mm -hmm. new joiners and even people I used to work with before, you know, the fact that all of a sudden you're not talking to them, it means that the relationship doesn't feel as strong as, as it used mm -hmm. to be. So I can only imagine how hard it is to, to start a job in, in lockdown. Conscious of time, I wanted to know if you had any tips because the role you took on was a very new role for the company and new for yourself. So you've been building it as, as you went, right? Do you have any tips to do that? So to craft your own role? Yeah, definitely. So for me, it's been really important and it's probably come, become increasingly important over lockdown is to be specifically crafting the role that I want. And I'm in a fortunate position to be able to do that now. I know not everybody can do that entirely. I mean, you can do it in part, but maybe not as flexibly as, as I can now. But it's about understanding kind of what I want from the role, as well as what the role wants from me or what the company wants from me. So I've always found there to be a bit of an imbalance when it comes to sort of like the employer-employee relationship. And it's like, oh, how can I deliver for this company? How can I make sure I give this company my best? And absolutely, we need to do that. But we do need to remember that it goes both ways. So the company also has to deliver for you and be the best it can be for you as well. And I think I've been very clear and candid with my line management team about you know what I want to get out of the role. And I've asked them to be the same level of candid with me as well, so that we're both very clear on expectations of what I need to deliver and what the company needs to deliver. And I think that a lot of people... And I felt this earlier in my career that where I couldn't speak as openly and as honestly as I wanted to, because I felt like, oh, well, you know, I just I just need to do the job for them. I'm I'm lucky to be here. So I just need to get on and do things and, and work really hard and blah, blah, blah. But now I, th I think I've sort of re tried to redress that balance a little bit by saying, you know, this is what I'm going to deliver for the company and I'm going to do that to the best of my abilities. And these are the things that I need to succeed. And if either of one of those things is out of balance, then this isn't really going to work. So I've taken the approach of <laughs> radical candor, and I have read that book, around what I think I need and then also what I'm able to and will deliver for the business. So it's, I think having those really open and honest conversations with the people around you to set expectations, really. And I, I try and set expectations very regularly. And they're stretching expectations on both sides because, you know, I want to grow and, and deliver and all of that. But it's important to me that it's on both sides, not just one way. Because I think that's why people leave roles and, and change roles, because they have expectations in their own head that aren't being met by the organization. But it's because they don't really vocalize those expectations. And so I think if people don't know that's what you want or what you need, then they you can't expect them to read your mind and just do it for you. So I think, you know, you have to put it out there what you want. And, you know, you have to do this on a regular basis. It's not just an objective setting season. Mm. You have to do this all of the time. So yeah, I think that's how I, what I would recommend to people. Just remember that it's a balance and remember that you need to tell people what you want, what you need, and also where you want to go. So I wanted to get into a, a leadership role. And so I told my previous bosses, current bosses, future bosses, I'm sure I'll tell, I told them that. And then they were able to help me get the right experiences that would set me up for that future leadership role. Because I think just by vocalizing it, you're making it a bit real, a bit more real. 
It's like the way people tweet things a bit. Well, I've tweeted it now, so that means I have to do it. So it's kind of like that. So if you tell people that's what you want, if they help you, then great. If they don't help you, then maybe it's time to find a new boss. Yeah, it's the accountability piece as well, right? So if you tell someone, you feel like they will hold you accountable for it. And it's very powerful what you just shared because it's true. I mean, if you don't tell people, they can't really know because they're not in your head. So you can't mm-hmm. expect it's same with, you know, when you want a promotion, you can't expect someone to know that you want a promotion. Yeah. So making sure that you're clear on, on what you want and let other people know is very important. I've actually been working on writing a, an article on crafting your, your own path. Hopefully this will be out by the time we, mm-hmm. <laughs> we this episode we, we will see fingers crossed last question for me and you've already mentioned radical candor what do you read or listen to or, or watch i mean everybody has their their own preferences that helps you in your career and in your personal development so i love that i mean i've already name checked radical candor i love reading in general i've been reading a lot of harvard business review lately interestingly because it's kind of like short form articles that are actually really, really helpful in terms of scratching the surface on something and then I can dig a bit deeper. So I read a lot of HBR. I listen to a ton of podcasts. So I try and do walking meetings because I've been finding myself literally sitting at my desk for 10 Mm -hmm. hours straight and that's not good for my health. So I try and do walking meetings. And when I'm not in meetings, I try and listen to podcasts. So things like Guy Raz, How I Built This, I love that one. I love hearing the founding stories of building companies. And I'm not saying I'm going to go out there and start my own startup, or at least not anytime soon. But it's just the the learnings that you get from doing something completely new and hearing about other people who've done something completely new is really helpful. So in, in my role today, like we've said already, it didn't exist before. And I know GPG is not a startup. I'm not trying to say that it is. But there's a lot of learnings that you can take from things like that you hear in things like how I built this because I'm building something new. And yes, it's within a quite a large organization, but it's the same principles apply. Watching, I just mostly just watch nonsense on Netflix. So probably <laughs> nothing, nothing interesting to recommend there. <laughs> Binge watching Squid Games probably doesn't help my career very much. Um, it helps with mental well-being. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. I mean, it was a very interesting, like, take on uh, society and class systems and all the rest but yeah probably not super helpful from a personal development front so I do have the tracksuit I did order the tracksuit for Halloween so that was quite really I I (laughs) have to admit that so I'm terrible with these things so the first time I, Mm. I came across it was I was walking in Waterloo so getting out of Waterloo station and there were these guys playing you know the game with the card where you have to move I can't explain so that you have to move the card I was like what are they doing (laughs) and I started asking people and they were like oh a squid game okay I will try to watch it and I fell asleep halfway through the first episode so that that's where I stopped really okay fair enough but everybody's talking about this so now I'm like maybe I should try to watch it properly and uh, not when I'm tired (laughs) yeah maybe although falling asleep in the middle maybe Maybe not a great sign. Maybe not for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Louise, for joining me on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Women in Data podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new guest. Until then, if you have two minutes, it would be great if you could leave us a rating or a review as it helps not only to make the podcast more visible, but also to enhance the content. If you don't want to miss the next episode, 
follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We are also on LinkedIn. And if you wish to, you can even register to the community for free. All you have to do is head to womenindata.co.uk. Have a great day.